0: So we're pleased to have back with us today the Reverend Parker Tennant. Many of you know Parker. Parker's a native Memphian, and he's served as a pastor at the University of Arizona, is currently an assistant pastor at Independent Presbyterian Church. I'm glad to have him with us this morning to open the Word of God to us. So thanks, Parker. Good morning. Uh, It is, again, great to be with you. Uh, This is, I think, the third time I've Been able to be with you in worship during your transition, and I'm excited for what God has for you. uh, And thank you so much just for allowing me to be with you and to open God's Word. It is a true blessing, uh, and I have been blessed by your presence and by opening God's Word uh, and hearing Him teach all of us. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 13. We're going to be looking at, the fir- I'll be reading the first five verses, but really we're going to spend the majority of our time in one verse, which is John 13, verse 1. This part in John's gospel is where John is transitioning from Jesus' public ministry to his personal ministry, Commentators, or many people that have researched the Bible, see this as Jesus' farewell address. It's referred to as the upper room discourse, where Jesus has personal, private time with his disciples, these men that he will entrust his authority to to carry on his mission in the world. And here at the very beginning of this intersection with his disciples, his relationship with them. He gives them something. He reminds them of something. There's a wealth of riches here in this one verse. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Pray for us and we'll jump in. This is God's word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, for you are the eternal word, and we come before you humbly as your people longing to be fed longing to know again of the truths of your gospel, that you truly love us. Despite how we feel about ourselves, despite how others feel about us, you have affection for us. You love us. And I pray for myself and I pray for all of us this morning as we hear from your word that that's what we would truly take away, that we have a God that truly loves us. So, Spirit, do your work for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So, we're just now coming off award season a little bit. If you pay attention to culture, we've just recently had the Oscars. Uh, and in February, on February 10th, 2019, we had the Grammys. I'm not much of a music guy, uh, but I pay attention to the, these awards because they tell us a little bit about our culture. Of what our culture values, what our culture is listening to. And on February 19th, 2019, they gave away uh, an award, the most prestigious Grammy you can win, which is Album of the Year. It's kind of like Best Picture for the Oscars. It's the one thing, it's the one award that every artist wants to win. Album of the Year. And this past year, it was given to this kind of rebellious, raw, eclectic rebellion alt-country girl by the name of Casey Musgraves, and maybe you've listened to her, uh, her album album Golden Hours, uh, one album of the year. And so wanting to be culturally relevant and investigate and be able to understand what's happening uh, with the young folk these days, I decided to listen to some of her music. And there was one song that stuck out to me that I can't stop listening to. I think it's so good because it speaks to us as human beings. It speaks to a need that we have. It's called Somebody to Love. Listen to her lyrics. We're all liars, we're all legends, we're all tens that want to be elevens. We're all happy, we're all hating, we're all patiently impatient and just waiting for somebody to love. We're all good, we're all angels, we're, we're all good, but we ain't angels. We all sin, but we ain't devils. We're all pots and we're all kettles, but we can't see, the, we can't see it in ourselves. We're all living till we're dying, and we ain't cool, but man, we're trying. Just trying, just thinking will be fixed by someone else. We all wrangle with religion, we all talk, but we don't listen. We're all starving for attention and then we run. We're all paper, we're all scissors. We're all fighting with our mirrors, scared we'll never find somebody to love. We'll miss a dime and grab a nickel, overcomplicate the simple. We're all little kids just looking for love. Don't we all just want somebody to love? How true is that? It is so true that everybody in this room, everybody that we bump into daily, is looking for somebody to love. They want to be loved. They want somebody to be thoughtful and to care for them, to express affection for them. They want somebody to appreciate them. You and I want somebody to sacrifice for us. We want somebody to value us. We want somebody to smile at us. We want want somebody not to leave us. We want somebody to understand us. We want somebody to cherish us. We want somebody to speak the truth to us. We just want somebody to love us. And that song that she sings is on repeat on my Amazon music right now because it's so true. I want that. I want somebody just to love me for who I am. And you want that too. For you are made to know that. God created you to be loved and to love. And so it's, it's a real thing that she's speaking about that we all can resonate with. And that sense of love that we all desire, we long for, plays an enormous part in our spiritual health as spiritual creatures, so often when we think about spiritual vitality, spiritual health, we, we think of two unique categories that are important. One is orthodoxy. You've heard this phrase. It's just a Greek big Greek phrase, $5 word, that means right thinking. Orthodoxy. Being right in the way that you think about who God is, about who man is, about the world. This is where doctrine comes in. We think rightly, the truth And when we think about spiritual health, we like to spend time in that category. That I'm spiritually well because I know what is right. I know the truth. But there's another category that we spend time in that we use as a metric as well, and that's orthopraxy right doing. Right? Out of the truth that we know about who we are and who God is, about his gospel, about his love for us, it spurs us on to do right. To be right. And so we take these two categories and we put them up in our lives and we evaluate who we are spiritually, our health, based on that. Do we think rightly and do we do rightly according to what the Bible says? But Richard Pratt, as he speaks about this kind of concept of spiritual health, he adds another category that's so helpful, and that's orthopathos, which is Feeling rightly. Yeah, we can think rightly, and we can do rightly, but do you as a human being feel right? Do you know the love of God? Has it penetrated your heart to the deep recesses of your soul, and it changes you? Not only do you think rightly, and you do rightly, but what do you feel rightly is the question I have for you this morning. Jonathan Edwards, maybe the greatest theologian that America has ever produced, wrote a famous book called Religious Affections, and he says this in that book, I am bold to assert that no change of religious nature will ever take place unless the affections of the heart are moved No one is humbled and brought to the feet of God unless he has seen for himself his unworthiness. No one will ever be induced to fly in refuge to Christ as long as his heart remains unaffected. Likewise, no saint has been weaned out of a cold and lifeless state of mind or removed from backsliding without having his heart affected. In summary, Nothing significant. This is Jonathan Edwards. Again, maybe the greatest theologian that America has ever known. He says this, in summary, nothing significant ever changed the life of anyone when the heart was not deeply affected. The question I have for you this morning, is your heart affected by the gospel? Sure, you might know the doctrines of faith. You might practice And be obedient in your everyday life, but is your heart affected? Do you feel rightly when God says He loves you, He truly loves you? Does that bounce off your heart like a ball bouncing off the wall, or is it taken in and it affects you and causes you to praise God that the God of the universe loves you, that loves me, and all your mess? He truly loves you. Do you think rightly? Do you do rightly? And the question for us is do you feel rightly this morning? Do you know the love of God in Jesus Christ? And that's what John is trying to communicate here in chapter 13 as he's recalling what took place there in that upper room, the upper room discourse. This first verse, Jesus is telling us in his word, he's reassuring his disciples of his love. Now, therefore, the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew the hour had come to depart out of this world, to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the very end. Love them to the very end. Well, what does that mean? We're going to jump into that. Two points I want, to, want you to see in that one verse. Actually, three. The last one's more of an application. The first point is this, is that Jesus' love for you and for me is very thoughtful. It's not a random love. God's love for you is not a surprise to him. Look at verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, that phrase there, he knew that his hour had come. That phrase is a phrase that's unique to uh, the Gospel of John that John constantly is referring to ten times in the life of Jesus. It starts back in John chapter two, verse four, where Jesus is interfacing with his mom at the wedding of Cana, and she asked him to fix what's happening. They've run out of wine. And what does Jesus tell her? Woman, it's not my time. It's not my hour. And that phrase throughout the Gospel of John is repeated over and over again, 10 times until we get to John chapter 13. And we learn that that phrase, my hour, is referring to his death, his crucifixion, his suffering upon a cross. And that points to us that Jesus knows exactly what he came to do. Jesus didn't just show up on this earth wondering, what am I here for? No, Jesus came with a purpose. He had a plan, he had orchestrated this redemptive plan with the Father before you and I ever existed. And he placed his love upon you to redeem you, to pay the price for your sins. To welcome you back into a healthy relationship with your Father, your Creator. That was all planned before you ever existed. Before you ever took a breath, God had thought of you. He knew you by name. He knew your story. He had placed his love upon you. David tells us that in Psalm 31. I mean, Psalm 139, 13 through 16. Listen to what David says. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David is recalling the truth about God's love for his people. And that's just extremely thoughtful. Don't you want somebody to think of you when you're not around? Maybe you've received a text this week, or an email, or a letter where somebody tells you that they're thinking of you. That they took time out of their life thoughtfully to send an expression of love to you. What does that mean to you? I can tell you what it means to me. It means the world to me. That somebody else is thinking of me and concerned about me. That they're praying for me. That they're writing me an email to encourage me. They're thinking about me when I'm not even around. And when Jesus says the hour had come, he's referring to his, his death, a death that he knew that he would have to face for you and for me to reconcile us back to himself. Everybody loves to receive gifts. I love to receive gifts. Uh, but there's one person that I love to receive, receive gifts from the most, and that's my wife, and it's not simply because she's my wife and I love her. It's because she gives the most amazing gifts, the gifts that are extremely thoughtful, that she's thought about me and what I would need on Christmas. I'm telling her, I'm telling people all kinds of things that I want. I would like a new pair, you know, of golf clubs or I would like this shirt or I would like, you know, a new haircut or, you know, or whatever these things that I need. And I'll tell people for Christmas, yeah, give me a gift certificates to uh, this place to get my haircut because I'd rather not pay for it. Uh, But my wife, one Christmas, gave me a pair of slippers. Now, if you know anything about me that you might think that to be surprising, you probably don't know anything about me, but I don't wear slippers. Uh, I get home, I take off my shoes, I walk around the house in my socks, uh, kind of veg out and just relax. And I constantly was complaining about how my, my feet are cold or my, my feet are you know, hurting because I'm walking on this hardwood floor. I never thought about having slippers. I mean I know that sounds crazy but but she thought about that and she gave me these slippers. And when I opened them up I was like, "Uh, uh-huh, thank you." <laughs> so thankful for slippers. I was hoping for a pitching wedge, but hey, I'll take the slippers. But as I put them on my feet and as I've used them, I've realized that is exactly what I needed. She knew me better than I knew myself and she thought about what I needed when I was not around. And what Jesus is telling his disciples here right now is he loves them with a thoughtful love. He's thought about them. He cares about them. So much so that he orchestrated this beautiful plan of redemption to redeem them. Jesus' love for you is not only um, thoughtful, it's also Reliable. Again, verse one, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What is John saying with this phrase? He loved them to the end. Well, John here is recalling that that Jesus had called these men to himself. He had loved his own who were in the world. That Jesus called these disciples. And from the minute that he called them to follow him, he loved them. He wanted to be with them. He singled them out and called them by name to come and follow him. He had placed his love, his earthly expression of love upon them. And through all three years of walking alongside of them, he didn't stop loving them. And Think with me about how amazing that is about these disciples, these knuckleheads that kept abandoning him, that kept questioning him, that didn't trust him, that their faith was weak. They wanted to leave him. They lied to him. And yet Jesus' love doesn't leave them. Jesus' love is not based on their performance their faith, how good or how bad of a disciple they are. Jesus' love was placed upon them because he loved them from the very beginning. And his love is reliable. A couple weeks ago, um, I went out to dinner with some friends and some family. And maybe you've been to this restaurant before. It's a staple in East Memphis called Houston's. Anybody been to Houston's before? If you haven't, that's okay. But we showed up at 8.15 with five people and thought, hey, we'll get in, a little bit of a wait. It was an hour and a half wait at 8.15 for five people. And we thought, okay, we're not going to wait. We're going to go to another restaurant. But there were people waiting there at 8.15 for an hour and a half to eat there. Now, I don't know their hearts, Again, I don't only God knows their hearts, but there's something about that institution that forces people to wait an hour and a half at eight fifteen to have a meal together. What, why are they waiting? Well, I can guess it's because the restaurant itself, what they provide, is reliable and it's good. They trust what they're going to get, the service they're going to get, the food that they get, everything on the menu tastes good. And so they don't want to risk it. They don't want to leave and go to another restaurant and think, well, maybe I'll get a good meal. Maybe I'll have good service. No, they want to stick around because they know that that restaurant and what they provide is reliable. To have somebody that's reliable To interface with an institution that's reliable is a very, very rare thing because we live in a world that's not reliable. You're not reliable to yourself. You say things to yourself all the time and you do something different. Just read Romans chapter seven, right? But to find somebody that is completely reliable, somebody you can completely trust and lead into, It's something that you're longing for. It's something that I'm longing for. This past week, again, I went to another restaurant, Chick-fil-A, the place that, right, if any fast food restaurant would be reliable, it would be Chick-fil-A. I took my kids there, and again, they failed me. They ruined my order. I couldn't believe it. And it was the manager that did it. He took my order and brought my meal to me. The guy that's supposed to do this for a living. And yet they got my meal wrong. When we interface constantly with unreliability, whether in relationship, with institutions, in jobs, it causes us anxiety and fear. It causes us to micromanage life because we don't feel like we can trust anybody. We can't trust these people with our order. We can't trust this person with my heart. And yet Jesus comes to his disciples. He comes to you today and says, if you're looking for reliability, look to me. I've loved my disciple. I've loved you and I haven't stopped loving you. And I'll never stop loving you. Jesus is very predictable. Predictable. You should always know when you come to Jesus what you're gonna get. You're gonna get a loving God that cares for you, that is thoughtful, that desires to shepherd you, that paid an ultimate price for you. He is predictable, and you can trust him. But lastly, what we see In this passage, this one verse is that Jesus' love is astonishing. When's the last time you were astonished by anything? Some of you were astonished just a few minutes ago by the music in here, and I was astonished as well. Unbelievable what you just heard and what you just sang so much so that you clapped your hands in celebration, a sense of joy overwhelming with astonishment of, of an offertory to God. When was the last time the gospel astonished you? When was the last time that God's love overwhelmed you and crushed you? You were so astonished that a God that would love you that much. Jesus tells us here that he went to the end. That word, therefore, end uh, is the Greek word telos. Maybe you know that. Can mean termination or conclusion. What Jesus is teaching us here is he loved these disciples to the conclusion of his life. couple of years ago, there was a great movie that came out uh, that was preceded by a book called Lone Survivor. Maybe you read it. Uh, it's about this miraculous uh, fight in Afghanistan where a guy survives miraculously, Marcus Luttrell. And I'm not going to go into the whole story. But he was interviewed by 60 Minutes and he talked about that experience as he watched his, his friend sacrifice his life so that he might live. And how he saw this happen and thought, once his friend sacrificed his life, that it was over for him. That death was at his doorstep. That it was too overwhelming. The Taliban so- soldiers were too many. And so he crawled with another one of his uh, soldiers' friends under this cleft of a rock. And he, he sat there, and he started screaming, we're about to die. It's about to be over. And he says this, I made peace with God a long time ago about dying. This is in the interview. But most of the time, we don't know when we're going to die. They just shut our lights off and it happens. It's a weird and fearful experience to know that death is at your door. Jesus here knows that death is at his door. He knows the conclusion of his earthly life is before him. And he doesn't stop loving. He doesn't abandon the mission. He doesn't wallow in self-pity. No, he moves forward in love to the cross to the place where he would be pierced, that he would be beaten, that he would be bloodied by the, the very creation that he made, that he came to save. Now, can you imagine Jesus walking through the streets of Jerusalem? This is, it says, the feast of the Passover. And Jesus knowing exactly what all this represents. As he's walking with his disciples, as he's interacting and teaching them and seeing all these people prepare for this sacrifice, this festival that reminds them of the great salvation in the Old Testament. Can you imagine what Jesus was experiencing? As he saw all these sheep knowing that that's what he's about to become. A sheep led to the slaughter for people he loves and cherishes. He loves us to the very end. Do you know that kind of love this morning? Do you know the love of Jesus Christ that is thoughtful, that he knows you by name? He created you. He thought of you before you ever existed. A love that's intentional. A love that never gives up a reliable love. And a love that's astonishing that God himself would die for you and would die for me. People that don't deserve it. Carl Barth, who was a theologian in the 20th century, um, some people refer, him as, refer to him as the godfather of neo-orthodoxy. And so we don't ascribe to that. Uh, I realize that. Uh, but as you study theology, as I had to do for many, many years, you have to interface with him because he was a, a major theologian in the 20, 20th century and interact with his ideas, his thoughts, with respect to um, your theological grid. <clears throat> and the famous story, maybe you've heard this, Uh, is when he was on his deathbed or close to dying, he came out with his great magnum opus, 14 books uh, of theology that he had spent his whole life writing, researching, studying. And he was interviewed uh, by a paper. And they asked him, how would you sum up these 14 books of theology? You spent your whole life writing, researching. And he looked at the reporter and he said, I would sum it up this way. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's what the Bible is all about, that there's a God that loves you He created you. He's redeemed you. He cherishes you. And he longs to be with you. And that's what this table is for. Now, as a point of application, we know this is the the great passage where Jesus takes off his outer garments and bends down and washes the disciples' feet. He takes on uh, the role of a servant. And he tells his disciples, if you want to love people, You need to serve them as I have served you. And he teaches us in verse 34 of this chapter, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The love of God, it's not something that we're supposed to take in and just sit in. Sometimes it is but it's to give away. It's for you to serve each other, to love each other, to be reliable as best as you can, to be thoughtful toward each other, to care for each other, and to point each other to the ultimate expression of love, which is Jesus Christ. How do we apply his love? It's by loving each other. That's how we fulfill the greatest commandment. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, the truth that you love us. There's so much to say about that. There's so much to take in, and our hearts cannot uh, take it all in because it's so overwhelming. But Lord God, I pray by your spirit that we would truly know in the places that are dark, and the places that we don't want anybody to go, and the places that we're afraid that you'll go, in those places, will you tell us that you love us, that you're for us, that you cherish us, that you long to be with us? And so I pray as we take this meal that we would taste and see of your love And you would cause our hearts to long, long for you to come back and to dine with us and to be with us forever. Spirit, do that as we partake of this meal. In Christ's name, amen.